You turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 30. And an elder alerted me last week to your practice, what has been your custom of standing for the reading of God's Word. I'll ask you that in a minute. Uh, the sermon title this morning uh, comes from 1 Peter 4.10, where Peter says, uh, serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace, or of God's manifold, or manifest, or, or multifaceted grace. I had to give that sermon title for the bulletin a couple days before I was able to sit down and work on the message, so hold that title loosely. But before we stand for our reading of Scripture, I want to put two questions to you this morning. Uh, One, for those of you who are here and you might consider yourself unbelievers or maybe those who are thinking about the Christian faith. And another, for those of you who are, we call yourself believers and who've been walking with the Lord for perhaps a long time. For those of you who are unbelievers, maybe questioning, investigating, the question is this. What is it that you think makes for a great Christian? What is it that you would say today, in your mind, makes for a great Christian? And for those of you who've been walking with the Lord for some time, my question for you is this. Has your view of God's grace increased or shrunk since a year ago? Um, the sensitivity, another way to put it, the sensitivity of your grace right radar to identify this and that and this object and that object as God's grace. Has that radar grown more sensitive to identify things as God's grace or less sensitive than it was a year ago? So with those two questions, let's stand together and hear this closing portion of 1 Samuel chapter 30, God's word for us this morning. Verses 21 to 31. I need my notes here with my pronunciation guide. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Beser. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, We will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth, and of the Negev, in Yatir, in Arur, in Sifmoth, in Eshtemah, in Rachel, in the cities of the Jerahmahalites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Borashan, in Ekthak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. And let us ask his blessing on us. Gracious God, as we have sung, so we now pray. 
I need you every hour. We need you every hour, and we need you in this hour. I ask for your help that I might proclaim your word faithfully and that your spirit would accompany it unto the transformation of your people, beginning with me. And we ask for your spirit in all of our hearts that your word may penetrate deep into the soil of our hearts and find good soil there and bear fruit. We make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I have just two points this morning for you. The first is guarding our awareness of God's grace. And the second is seeing others as objects of God's grace. So let's begin with the first one. Guarding our awareness of God's grace. Many moons ago when I was uh, in my 20s and a graduate student, I had an amazing summer living in Lausanne, Switzerland. I was studying French at the university there, and I was living with um, a post office worker and his wife who was a house cleaner. They rented the small bedroom that used to belong to their son who had just graduated in what was a very modest apartment. And I will never forget carrying my bags the first time up those four flights of stairs internally, walking into an internal hallway and knocking on a door, and Danielle and Elizabeth greeted me. And what I most remember is not immediately the faces of Danielle and Elizabeth, but the view over their shoulder. You see, Lausanne is, is a city that's situated right on Lake Geneva. It's on a hillside, and so underneath it, below it, is one of the most beautiful lakes in all of Switzerland, and across the way stand the Alps, just towering to the level, to the altitude of, of snow-capped peaks all summer long. And that was the view behind their shoulders through their small windowed double doors that led out to their little balcony of this lake and these gorgeous Alps that looked like you could reach out and touch them. And I'll also never forget what Elizabeth said when I, when I commented about this. I said to her, wow, what a view. This must be amazing to live here in some kind of broken French that I can't even do anymore. And she shrugged her shoulders and said, j'habitude, which means I get used to it. Such a view, and yet such a human capacity to get used to it. In our passage this morning, we pick up from the last couple of weeks where David and his men have come back to their town of Ziklag and found that an Amalekite raiding band has burned it to the ground, taken off with their wives and children and their possessions. They don't yet know that it's an Amalekite raiding band, and they have no idea where they've gone. David's men consider a mutiny. They're thinking actually of stoning him in verse 6. Remember this perhaps from two weeks ago. And those nine words, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And then David, rising from strengthening himself in the Lord his God, seeks the priest and puts the question before the priest, should we pursue, shall we overtake them? And the Lord answers, yes, you shall pursue and you shall overtake and you shall, you shall recover all that was taken from you. So David and his 600 mighty men, this is from last week, set off in pursuit, not knowing where exactly. They then happen upon an Egyptian slave that had been left for dead. He'd fallen sick, and this raiding band had left him for dead there in the wilderness. David and his men 
nurse him back to health. And when he has enough strength to speak, they learn from him that he belonged to an Amalekite raiding band that had raided their town and taken off with their women and children. And yes, if David and his men promise not to kill him or to hand him over, he will take them straight to the Amalekite raiding band's camp. So they resume their pursuit. But then at the end, uh, then 200 of the 400, 200 of the 600 of David's mighty men are simply too exhausted from what has been uh, a long several days of walking 120, probably 150 more miles by that point. And so they set camp at the brook Besser, and they simply can't go any farther. But the remaining 400 of the men in David give chase. They're led to the camp, and as you might remember from last week, they launch their attack, they subdue the camp, they neutralize the Amalekites, and they find there in the camp that what God has promised is true. They recover all, every wife, every child, every possession, and even more, because in that camp is the spoil that this raiding band has gotten from their raids of towns all up and down Judah and Philistia. And now in our passage today, they're making the return to Ziklag, which brings them back to the 200 at the Brook Besser. We read that they came out to greet David. Perhaps they saw David and his band before David saw them. As they come out to greet him, they come also to greet the people that were with him. And that's obvious because it's, it's their own wives and their own children that they thought perhaps they'd never see again. And there they are. And the hugs and the kisses. And in the midst of this happy reunion, there is injected into this story a new tension. We read that some of these 400 men, and the narrator tells us that they were some of the wicked and worthless among the 400 men, say to these 200 who had not gone the full distance, who had not carried out this half-day or day-long attack, who had not retrieved the women, the children, the spoil, and brought them back this far, that they shall have no share with us in all of this spoil that we have recovered. And let them take their wives and children and depart. So there's, there's two things into what they are saying. Number one, we get to keep all the extra swords, spears, shields, treasure, goats, and whatnot that we have found. And we're going to kick them off the team. Let them depart. They've just been living in the most amazing story of grace for the last several days. That they, that they found this raiding band at all. That they recovered everything that had been taken because God had spoken through his priest to David and God had provided this unexpected provision of this Egyptian there in the wilderness who took them straight there. They're living in the midst of this story of grace and yet in this moment it's as if they would say, Jebitude, got used to it. Now all that we're thinking about is keeping what we think is ours from what should not be theirs. And we see that David picks up on that language of all this spoil that we have recovered. And he says to his brothers, we should not do so with what the Lord has given us. You see, David has guarded his awareness of God's grace. And yet these 400 men, or at least some among them, seem to have lost it. And the culprit in the story seems to be the spoil. 
Again, all this treasure, all of this livestock, all of these great new weapons. When you read back in, in 1 Samuel, you find that these mighty men, they first were kind of formed around David back in chapter 22. And we read in verse 2 of chapter 22 that these men fled from you know, King Saul's reign. They kind of come and take shelter with David. They join his camp. And these were not the cream of the crop of Israel. We read that they were the distressed. They're kind of the down and out. And they were in debt. And it's from this group that David forms these 400 mighty men to begin with. It then grows to 600. And it seems that what has happened is overnight, in seizing everything in this Amalekite camp and in getting it back and seizing more, they have gone from having nothing to being the richest that they have ever been. And all of a sudden, the lure of things has made them rich, but made their spiritual vision poor. And so instead of seeing things as gifts of God's grace, they now see it as theirs. I think that we can do that sometimes as Christians. If we've been walking with the Lord for a while, we maybe come to faith, we come to realize what God and His grace has done for our souls. That Jesus has borne our sin on the cross, paid our debt, removed every barrier to fellowship with God, both now and eternal life with Him, And we can sing and rejoice in the fact that our souls belong to God. And yet, how easily, as we begin going through life, we begin to say, my soul is God's possession by grace, but all of my things, those are mine. We begin to think of my reputation that I have worked so hard to build. My job that I have worked so hard to to develop. My money that I've worked so hard to earn and save. My family that I have sacrificed everything for. My friends that I've been there, I've been there for them all these years. Maybe even my church that I have served through thick and thin. As we begin to think of our souls as belonging to God and His grace, but everything else as our possession, we begin to see these things as belonging to us not by grace but by works. And we we begin to become protective of them and see things as threatening to them, just like these 400 men did. It's been said that you can spell sin, M-I-N-E. I'm sure some of you all who love Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, your mind has gone to Gollum. And the ring that he found that he did not make, but began to call my precious as we look at this passage, we see this distinction between how David guards his awareness of God's grace. These things are the things the Lord has given to us, and he's the one who preserved us, and we can't, we can't treat them like they are our own, versus how some of these wicked and worthless, as they're called among the 400, have begun to see them as the spoils that we have recovered. And I would just put to you this morning, what, what in your life have the fingers of mine begun to, to clutch? That you find yourself pulling close to your chest and and viewing everything else as a threat to it, and you need to protect it. Whether it's how you're viewed by other people, or whether it's your portfolio, or whether it's your free time, or whether it's your children, or whether it's your, uh, whether it's your church. What might it be 
that you have, you've lost the clarity of seeing it through the lens of grace and you've begun to see it as mine and as something that belongs to you by works. We see in this passage, David exemplifies the need for us to, to guard our awareness of grace. And then the second thing that we see in this passage, we see in this passage the need to see others as objects of grace. To see others as objects of grace. Look at how David deals with the 200 and with the 400. First, when he, when he sees the 200, he has, this, he has this compassion for them. He dignifies them. He notices that they haven't done nothing for the last few days. Hey, they've at least kept the baggage from getting taken off by another raiding party. They've guarded and kept it well. And so he dignifies them. He acknowledges something that they've done. He lifts them up. And he makes it a statute that as he who goes into the battle, his share is, so shall his share be who sits by the baggage. It's kind of like uh, the members of the Clemson football team when they win a national championship. The rings don't go just to the starters who, who played every snap in the final game. They go also to the players who never saw the field. And, and David wants a kingdom like that where there's a sense of we're all here together and it's the Lord who's brought us here. But look at how he also talks to the 400. He doesn't come down on them. He doesn't become stern with them. No, initially he's quite gentle. He calls them my brothers. We shall not do this, my brothers. And he reminds them of what the Lord has done in their lives. With the Lord, he's the one who's preserved us. And he appeals to their reason. Who shall believe us? Who shall believe you if you speak this way in this matter? He's very gentle with them. And I think it's because David remembers that he's living in a story of grace. And so he and every man in this group, whether they went the whole distance or not, are right now objects of God's grace. And that informs everything about how he reacts and how he talks and how he sees and treats, treats them. Think with me of the difference between two rooms, um, a courtroom and a sanctuary. How do people view each other in a courtroom? When you walk into a courtroom, you, you view the person on the other side as an adversary, as a threat. And your goal in the courtroom is to, to seek justice. And you, you're constantly thinking, how can I make the better case for the way that I'm in the right and they are in the wrong? When you go into a sanctuary, though, maybe some of you all have had this experience of traveling through a major city or traveling abroad, and you're just a tourist, and you walk into a sanctuary, and you see some people some locals who are there praying and they're facing toward the front, perhaps toward a cross. And the way you view them is these are fellow needy sinners, weak and wounded by the fall. And in this room, I'm reminded that none of us are seeking justice. All of us have hope only if there is mercy. And so you see them as fellow objects of grace. I think what's happening in this passage is that these, these wicked and worthless men who don't want to share the spoil, as they're reunited with the 200, they see them in the courtroom. You haven't done what we have done. We're the ones who risked our lives. We're the ones who didn't get exhausted. And this is what we deserve. And so they're prosecuting the others. And then David enters the scene and he sees everyone as in the sanctuary. Everyone. None of them deserve to be where they are right now. None of them deserve to be reunited with their, their wives and their children and to have all of their things. 
And so he sees everyone as objects of grace. And he treats them accordingly. Is there anyone in your life right now that you have in the courtroom? Maybe they're just annoying you or agitating you constantly. Or maybe there's some real issue between you that's not yet resolved. And so where your mind is in its free moments is in a state of prosecution. You're constantly replaying the last conversation, constantly replaying the last engagement, constantly thinking of how you were in the right and how to show it and how they were in the wrong and why can't they see it. And it's exhausting you. And it's driving you further from their fellowship. It may even be people in, this, in your own congregation in the same body of Christ. In this passage, we see what can happen if you, if in, you in your mind, take them out of the courtroom and bring them into the sanctuary and see them as the same needy, helpless sinners without any hope in this life or eternity whatsoever unless Christ has as much mercy on them as he has on you, and unless Christ has as much mercy on you as they need Christ to have mercy on them. When we see others as objects of grace, it will change how we think about them, and it will change how we treat them. And we may need to learn time and again, I'm sliding into the courtroom in my mind. I need, Lord, your help to pull my relationship with this person in my mind back into the sanctuary. So this passage, we see the need to guard our awareness of God's grace, and we see the need to, to see others as objects of grace. What goes on from here is David takes some of this spoil, and he sends it as gifts to the leaders of Judah, of different towns that he's been able to find some help and some refuge in. And it doesn't seem that David knows this yet, but while all of this is going on, you learn in the next chapter... While all this is going on, chapter 30, King Saul dies. Which means that David, the one anointed long ago to be king, but waiting until the throne was vacated, is now the de facto king. He will soon be installed. And the spoil that he's splitting up and sending to these different leaders of Judah is solidifying their, their loyalty to him and strengthening their own towns for all their future continued wars against the Philistines. David is at this point on the brink of the throne. It's amazing what's happened in 1 Samuel chapter 30. It begins with David on the brink of being stoned and having lost everything and his own men turning on him. But he strengthens himself in the Lord. And then the Lord so graciously keeps his men together that set that Egyptian in advance, that unexpected provision that leads them to the camp where they recover everything and more. So much more they're able to share among all the 600 and David has additional treasures and armaments and other spoil to share with the leaders of Israel which prepares him to receive their loyalty as he now takes the throne. It's quite a turn of events that happens in just one chapter. And coming back to those first two questions I asked you, what does this tell us about what it means to be a Christian? And what does it tell us about our awareness of God's grace? I hope if you're here this morning, and not just in what I've said, but even in what Paula said at the beginning, and, and what Mark said as he was leading some of the worship, and in this, the hymns that we've sung, you've, you've picked up that what makes for a great Christian is not that that man or that woman has some great natural abilities or some great upbringing or some great mind 
Certainly what makes for a great Christian is not that someone has such great willpower that they are able to follow Jesus and say yes to things and no to things in a way that you never could. No, that is not what makes for a great Christian. What makes for a great Christian is great grace. What makes for a great Christian is David there abandoned, helpless, having nothing and knowing it and seeking to strengthen himself only in the Lord. And from that point on, it's a story of God's great grace to David and to his men, including the men who were too weak even to go the full distance. And then his great grace through David to the leaders of Judah who had lost things to the raiding party and now received much of it back. What makes a great Christian is someone who knows his or her need, senses deeply his or her helplessness, has a deep-seated sense of his or her sinfulness, and yet has come to believe what God's Word says about God's grace in Jesus Christ. And says, I believe that Jesus is enough for me, not only for eternal life, to have my debt removed, that I may be received into God's good pleasure and kingdom and family, but also to have what you need every hour and every day of this life. That's what makes for a great Christian. It's great grace. And if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, I ask you that question, is your view of God's grace greater than it was a year ago or lesser? Is your radar, your grace radar, more sensitive to things or less sensitive than it was a year ago? I think from this story, we're reminded of the need for our, our sensitivity to God's grace to be always growing, not receding. For some of those 400 men, it had receded in a matter of hours or a couple of days from experiencing this, 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 this victory over the Amalekites, regaining all that was lost, to all of a sudden, look what we've done, look what we've recovered, and no, we're not going to share it. And yet David's sense of God's grace, in truth, it has not stayed the same, it has grown. In verse 6, he had nothing but his own life and the Lord. And now at the end of our story, he's richer than he's ever been. And yet everything they've recovered and every man in his orbit pops up on his grace radar as a gift of God. And blessed is the man or woman for whom that is true as well that your sensitivity to the things in your life being gifts of God's grace, even if you don't fully understand them at the time, is increasing season by season and year by year. So we have seen over the last three weeks David hitting a new all-time low. And then at the end of last week, we saw him reaching a new all-time high. And this week we see what he does with all that he's received and how he treats it as grace, all grace. And I want to close this morning with a story about Corey Ten Boom. Many of you all may know her, or not know her, know of her. She was a Dutch watchmaker living in the Netherlands at the time when the Germans had the Netherlands occupied during the Nazi regime. She was a Christian, as was her sister, Betsy, and her father. And in this very difficult time, they were attuned to what was going on with the Jews. 
And so Corey and Betsy and her father began to hide Jews in their home from the various Nazi roundups. They were quite successful for a time until they were found out. And they were arrested. In fact, it's interesting, when they were arrested and hauled away, there were Jews that were hiding in their home at that time and the Jews were not discovered. Her father dies just days after their first placement in a, in a prison. Betsy and her sister end up in a concentration camp, and they spend quite a while there. Betsy and Corey are put in a barracks that's for all women, and these barracks are filthy and overcrowded. And most uncomfortably for them day by day, they are infested with fleas. In the midst of this time, they're able to have a Bible smuggled in to their barracks. And Betsy and Corey Tenboom begin to lead some Bible studies that then grow into little worship services around a lamp in the back of their barracks. Highly illegal. And they're coming through the New Testament. They go through the New Testament three times. And their third time going through the New Testament, they come across 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, where God's word says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, now Betsy, in this life of these two sisters, has in some ways the stronger faith. She's the one who is known to say, there is no pit so deep, but that God is deeper still. And when they come across this passage in 1 Thessalonians 5, Betsy says, we need to give God thanks for the fleas. Corey could not do that. That's too much, she said. The fleas, there's no way that I can give God thanks for the fleas. But Betsy pushes on her and says, no. Says, giving thanks in all circumstances. Corey, that means the fleas too. And she keeps pressing and keeps insisting until Corey finally prays out loud, giving God thanks for this and that and the Bible and the Bible study and the protection of the fact that guards have not come in and for the fleas. Over the next several months, their, their worship service continues to meet. Corey Tenboom says these were the most amazing worship services she was ever a part of in her whole life. And they were always curious, why have the guards never come in and checked our barracks? Why have they not come and, and found us out? They won't even come in here. And, and one day, Betsy goes out to see a guard needing some help resolving a matter and asks the guard to come into their barracks to resolve this matter of some work they're doing. And the guard comes to the threshold and stops and says, I'm not going in there. And she says, why won't you come in? She goes, because of the fleas. This place is crawling with fleas. And Betsy realized the protection from the guard's assaults, the protection from the guard's searches, the ability to have a Bible study that had been their one lifeline, their source of comfort, had been all because of the fleas. And when she told Corey, the first thing that came back to Corey's mind was a couple months earlier, how hard Betsy had to push to get Corey to give God thanks for those fleas. Clemson Presbyterian Church, I know it's been a hard year. It was hard with COVID going back to a year and a half ago already. It's been hard with the loss of your pastor. It's been hard with a lot of a lack of clarity about a lot of things. 
a place of rest has become for many of you a place that's been very exhausting. And that's not to mention the things that are going on in your individual lives, in your family lives, in your work lives. But what have been for you the fleas? That you've thought, I can give God thanks for this and that, but I can't give him thanks for that. No way. I don't even think he'd want thanks for that. I want to challenge you this afternoon before the congregational meeting to put your finger on that and maybe hear Betsy by your side saying, no, no, giving thanks in all circumstances. God wants you to give him thanks for that too because you have no idea how your all-wise, all-powerful, loving Heavenly Father is using that hardship in your life to bring about a good that you are already experiencing and you don't yet see the connection. But one day, you might. And when you do, you'll even thank him for the fleas. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Gracious God, these are holy matters. And we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you see us as objects of mercy and objects of grace. Help us to see each other that way. Help us to see all in our life as somehow a gift of your grace, however hard it may be. Help us to strengthen ourselves in you. Help us to give thanks. And help us to be ready to receive what you have next for us, personally, in our families, in our work, in our studies, in our church, and in all of our lives. Continue to minister your word to the hearts of each man, woman, and child here by the power of your Holy Spirit. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.